Welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. I'm Tyler Green. One quick announcement before we get to this week's program. Next week's program will be our last of the summer before our annual two-week end of August and Labor Day weekend break. I don't know about y'all, but with art museums reopening in some parts of the country, I recently visited the Gilcrease in Tulsa and Crystal Bridges in Northwest Arkansas myself, I'm pretty excited to return to looking at art and especially to welcoming artists and curators back onto the program as often as you've come to expect over the last nine years. Anyway, back to next week. We'll be saying goodbye to the summer of COVID with just our second Q&A show. My partner in answering will be Los Angeles-based journalist, critic, and soon to be even more, Catherine Wagley. Tweet or DM your questions to me at Tyler Green Books, all one word, on Twitter or Instagram. Watch my IG stories for calls for questions or send them to my guest herself, Catherine Wagley. She's on Twitter and Instagram at CG Wagley. On to this week's show. My first guest is John Rohrbach. He's the curator of Acting Out, Cabinet Cards in Modern Photography, which opens this Tuesday, August 18th, at the Eamon Carter Museum of American Art in Fort Worth. The exhibition examines how cabinet cards became the primary format for photographic portraiture between roughly the end of the Civil War and 1900. The exhibition shows how photography studios and their customers used photography as a means of personal and individual expression, as well as how cabinet cards reflected early celebrity culture will be on view through November 1st. The exhibition catalog was published by the Eamon Carter in association with University of California Press. It's available from Amazon and through IndieBound for about $45. On the second segment, we'll listen back to my conversation with Mary Morton about true-to-nature open-air painting in Europe, 1780-1870. It's on view at the National Gallery of Art in Washington. They've just extended it through November 29th. First up, John Roebuck, after the break. Explore art with Getty. Visit our online exhibition, Bauhaus, Building the New Artist, winner of this year's Muse Award for Best Online Experience. Watch videos about art making, conservation, and art history. Read timely blog posts to boost your knowledge and artistic spirits. Learn to make and explore art from home. And tune into Recording Artists, winner of the 2020 Webby Award for Best Arts and Culture Podcast. Learn more at getty.edu art. The Nasher Museum of Art at Duke University in Durham, North Carolina, is temporarily closed for the health and safety of all visitors. Meanwhile, visit the Nasher Museum online to find gems from the museum's archives. Here are special videos, articles, and podcast episodes featuring artists who have visited the museum and whose work is part of our collection. Here, too, are some greatest hits among reviews in the arts press over the past 15 years. Visit nasher.duke.edu. And we're back. John Rohrbach, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. It's a pleasure to be here with you. What are cabinet cards and what role did they play in American visual culture from roughly the end of the Civil War until around the Kodak Brownie era, which started in about 1900? Cabinet cards are the main way the middle class in America got its portrait made in the last quarter of the 19th century. In other words, if they went to a studio to get their portrait made, most times they would get it back on a piece of cardboard, a photograph mounted on a piece of cardboard. And that piece of cardboard was about the size of the larger phones today. 
think of the Samsung Galaxy, for example. The cards were about six and a half by four and a quarter inches. And you could stick them in envelopes to mail them off. You could stick them in albums. You could stick them in frames. You could put them up on a shelf. And what makes them significant and what I learned in studying them was that that really helps people get used to presenting themselves in front of the camera. And they taught people to think of photography as a means for capturing the moment as opposed to merely depicting the world. So what they did was really help people not only take control of the photographic, more control of the photographic moment, but they were ready for the brownie camera when it got introduced in 1900. They were ready for the snapshot. How did the size of cabinet cards compare to other pictures, other mounted photographs that were available to people between the 1860s and the turn of the 20th century? Because cabinet cards seem tiny compared to the way photographs are today that you see in museums and galleries, where 30 by 40 is not a small, is not a particularly large size anymore even. And that is that they were three times larger than the main size of photographs that one got when one went into a studio. When cabinet cards were introduced just after the Civil War, the main photographic format of the day was about two-thirds smaller. It was a photograph that was about three and a half by two inches, also mounted on a card. But at that size, you could get a sense of what one looked like, a little bit of a sense of what one was wearing. But cabinet cards delivered just enough space that you could start to put in props more readily, that you could put in, that you could wear all sorts of jewelry and present yourself much more actively in front of the camera. Did they coexist with stereographs? Did they kill off or help kill off stereographs? No, what's interesting is that cards to visite, the smaller version of photographs that most people would have gotten their portrait made on that format, and stereo cards and tintypes and so on continued on till the 20th century. But certainly by the late 70s, cabinet cards were really the dominant format for people interested in getting their portrait made. Did cabinet cards happen all at once all over the United States, or was there a particular center of of innovation of, of the beginning of them? There was a major center of innovation. They were introduced all over the United States in 1866 and 1867. The notion of the photographic trade, those people who were editors of the journals and so on, was, would be that they take off and really be embraced all over the United States. Uh, but for their first 10 or 15 years, they were largely embraced in larger towns and cities, and in particular, New York City. You know, before, before we get to Napoleon Serrani and his studio in New York, you know, one of the things about CDVs that was popular with the buying public in the 1860s was that you could collect celebrities. You could buy CDVs of famous professors or presidents or, or businessmen. Did a similar market exist in cabinet cards or were they more personal? A similar market occurred early on. There was an easy transition from cards to the seats to cabinet cards in that one of the main early, most popular early uses of cabinet cards were 
uh, to collect photographs of major public theaters and particularly theatrical figures. I should say that when when cabinet cards were introduced, photography studios existed all over the United States. New York City alone had over 100 photography studios. And if you were living in any town of any size at all, you inevitably had a photography studio in that town. In fact, photographs were so ubiquitous, this being only 20 years after their introduction, that Oliver Wendell Holmes was writing about his love for them and calling Parts of the Zed in particular the greenbacks of civilization. Yeah, that's a great phrase. (laughs) I mentioned Napoleon Sereny a moment ago. Who was he? And what were some of his innovations that helped him stand out from the rest of the trade? Cerrone was a Canadian who came down to New York City with his family as a child, was apprenticed to lithographers, came to have an adapt acuity to drawing, and then went off to Europe to learn more about painting and drawing and the arts, basically to make the broad uh, European sojourn. He happened to have a brother who had settled in in North Britain, and that brother had taken up an interest in photography. And he learned photography, we believe, from his brother and brought that craft back to the United States right at the time that cabinet cards were introduced. And what makes his work particularly important are two things, one technical and the other psychological. The technical aspect that makes his work important was that he, along with his brother, invented and patented whole brace that would hold up arms and legs, but still be hidden behind the body. And what that did was allow people to pretend that they were caught in an instant when they were really posing very carefully for seconds at a time. The other gift that he had and what he brought to his business was a really adept way of capturing natural gesture. He was a genius at capturing that very point where the sitter relaxes before the camera and the sitter gives all of themselves without self-consciousness to his lens. And in recognizing that moment of, shall we say, unself-conscious engagement, he was able to take photographs of literati and actors and public personages that were so engaging and so lifelike that the public ate them up by the thousands, or purchased them, I should say, by the thousands. Was his background in an interest in painting unusual among the owners of photographic studios at the time? No, there were painters interested in photography from day one. And there was a lot of back and forth between the two media just in terms of thinking about how one visually looks at the world and translates it into another medium. So he wasn't alone by any means, but what he did was he brought that skill for reading the emotions of the world to photography in a really quite extraordinary way. Even today, his many of his photographs present their figures as if they're very relaxed comfortable before the camera. And this was at a time where most people, when they went into a photographic studio, went in with great trepidation because you had emotions that were 
mainly sensitive to blue. And you had photographers who were more interested in simply getting the result out than getting an emotional response. And if we think of how we respond today to our own self-portraits, it's a difficult thing to see yourself in the image and to be able to accomplish that in a way to make a photograph that accomplishes or presents a portrait of you in a relaxed form that even you like is, is unusual. There are more than a dozen of his pictures in your show and in your book. Do you have a favorite? I think my favorite probably is the picture of uh, Joseph Jefferson, who's sitting with his foot propped up on a stool, beer stein in hand, looking out, playing the role of Ichabod Crane, yes. And Jefferson was so successful in that role, he played it for decades. And in this case, he relives that role as if he's in a bar scene, but for the photographer. There are a whole bunch of pictures of actors and actresses here, of, of his here. Yes, there are. And what Cerrone did was try to present these actors sometimes playing their roles, often playing their roles, but often with such careful lighting and careful attention to detail that he would do such things as draw in the smoke to his photograph of Harry James Montague or in his photograph of Fanny Davenport, make sure that there was a blazing fire in the fireplace. And these are all little details that we tend not to pay attention to today because they're so obvious and photographic, but at that time, you couldn't capture that information on film. So what Cerrone is doing is putting in front of you what is clearly to everybody's eyes, a partial fabrication. He is playing a game that everybody is willing and, and loves feeding into. And the actors loved it because these cards were like trading cards. They were sold by middlemen. They were put out by the theaters where those actors were performing. They built a fan base that allowed those actors to have some control over their careers to step, separate out from the theatrical studio system that existed today. When I think of theater at that day, the analogy for me is the Hollywood studio system of the mid 20th century where actors were under contract for extensive periods of time. And the way you broke that is becoming an important enough actor and a popular enough actor to uh, gain your own set of people around you, gain your support from others independent of the studio system. And that's what some of these actors were trying to do. You mentioned the control the photo maker had over every little detail, such as the smoke coming out of the cigar. I don't know if we've mentioned it, but these are all, 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 all studio portraits. How central was the studio set up to their making? And I mean, in terms of lighting, backdrops, and everything else, costuming. It depended on the photographer. With Cerrone, early on, he tended to use very similar backdrops. You see the same backdrops and same furniture show up in a number of images. He was more interested in the pose and the emotional character of the image. Whereas some of his competitors were interested in shortening the exposure so that they didn't have to make their 
figures sit for so long. For example, his competitor, Benjamin Falk, advertised that his studio had electric lights so that he could shorten those exposures. And his competitor, Jose Mora, who actually studied and worked under Cerrone, learned the craft under Cerrone, advertised that he had many, many more backdrop options than any of his competing photographers in New York City. And that's what they would use to try to pull business away from Cerrone. It's really fascinating that through the last decades of the 19th century, basically from 1867 to Cerrone's death in 1896, he was the go-to photographer. And if you had the wherewithal, you could demand that he photograph you and he would come back to you. He had the standing that he could come back to you and say, you have to submit to everything I say in my setting up of the photograph. Otherwise, I have no interest in photographing you. And those people who couldn't gain Cerrone's attentions went to other photographers. We've been talking about cabinet pictures of celebrities of the day. But of course, as you noted a moment ago, you know, the average folk, the, the, the bourgeoisie flocked to cabinet card makers. Were people, you know, Joe Smith and Jane Smith posing themselves and their children, or were they responding to the direction of, of studio owners? I don't think we can answer it entirely with great assuredness, simply because we don't know a lot about many of the photographers whose work is at least presented in my project. We know some of the major photographers working in, in urban areas, but many of these photographers that whose works are shown in acting out are small town photographers scattered across the Northeast and the Midwest and Upper Far West. And we just don't know enough about them to know how they ran their studios. I, my guess is it's a little bit of both, that the photographer offered some opportunities and offered some suggestions, and the sitter offered their own suggestions, and they came to an accommodation. Sometimes we see a background in props and pictures. Sometimes we see an isolated, feathery, almost head floating in space, especially of children. What do we know about how and why people like to be portrayed and particularly how they like to have their children portrayed? Well, I, I, I want to sort of step back for a second because while the trade would have loved to have cabinet cards take over the United States in an instant, it really took some time for people to embrace the cabinet card. And the backdrops, the overlays where you vignette just ahead surrounded by some other feature. The advertising on the backs of those cards are all aspects of or ways of getting people to think of their cards as personalized, to think of their portraits as portraits of individuals rather than groups. And I take the analogy back to Cards to Visite. With Cards to Visite, the previous form of photographic portraiture, there were sort of standard props and standard poses. Whereas with cabinet cards, those standards went out the door and in 
part, it was an advertising effort by providing that kind of variety. You got photography, you coaxed local people to come into the studio to get their portraits made. And, and in part, it was a change in people's thinking and approaches to life. There was a, I think, if you think in terms of the history of the 19th century, prior to the Civil War, there was much more of a sense of sort of civicness and community. And after the Civil War, in those, particularly the last two or three decades of the 19th century, people's sense of themselves and their relationship to society had changed pretty dramatically. You mentioned that sitters would sometimes be surrounded by or placed within a design so, for example, in uh, a photograph of a woman made in the 1890s by Charles O'Campbell's studio in Richmond, Virginia, there's a woman whose head and part of her upper body is within a diamond that is pierced by an arrow, which is simple but captures the eye. And on the more Baroque end of things... <laughs> There's a photograph made by David R. Horton's studio in Pawpaw, Michigan, of a woman whose picture appears to be inset into a an ornate gilded frame, which is leaning against or hanging above a shelf with a flower and all kinds of stuff floating around. <laughs> so those are the kinds of things I think you're talking about when you're you're talking about how people welcomed having their visages made into designs? Well, it's a way of individualizing the portrait. It's a way of adding references to hobbies, to interests. It's a way of making the portrait different from all of the other portraits. And other ways that photographers did it was giving you the option of presenting yourself, for example, in a snowstorm or not in a snowstorm or looking at the camera or looking away from the camera. And that's why I say, suggest that um, it was really a collaboration that occurred. You have to remember that while cabinet cards were very inexpensive by today's standards, selling for roughly $2 a dozen, in today's terms, that's a fair amount of money. That's 40 or $50. And so the challenge of photographers was not only to get somebody into the studio, but to get somebody through the studio experience and have them come out of the other end happy. And not only that, but to get them so happy that they wanted to come back. And I think that's part of what cabinet cards did by focusing on the moment, focusing on the individuality of the sitter. They coaxed people into thinking of photography as not a means merely to record a visage, what one looked like, but to record a moment. Your colleague, Britt Salveson, who's a curator at the Los Angeles County Museum of Art, writes an essay for the catalog about the business of cabinet pictures. And one of the elements she spotlights, and that is or are included in the show, are the backs of these card pictures. So on one side of the piece of cardboard would be the, the photograph, and on the other side would be these elaborate promotional designs. I don't, I don't even know what to call them. What was the point of them? Why are they there? And why did photographers and photography studios have what looks like such great fun 
in kind of going over the top with them? <laughs> well, the short and easy answer is with the larger cards, you have more space. And if you have a blank space, you want to fill it. And yes, photographers put their names and their addresses on the front of the cards, on the bottoms of the front of the cards. But in the back is really where they could sell their personality. So that someone looking at the card could not only be entertained by what's on the front, but as much so by the one on the back and say, this photographer is clearly having a good time and I want to go see what they're like. At the same time, you have slightly tongue-in-cheek, but also more serious statements. For example, with Evan's studio, and unfortunately we haven't been able to discover his name yet, from Granbury, Texas, where he has a whole letter at the end at the back of the card, which opens, Dear Reader, consider today, for tomorrow you may die. And it goes on to say, why not get your photograph made? And so you have to, you look at that and you just have to laugh. And that's part of the whole milieu of getting people, the whole charge on the part of photographers, of getting people to think about photography as a frequent, repeated event. And the other thing that I like about the backs is not only the variety of uh, images that one sees, the frequent connection to artists. You see little boutique, you see artists drawing it on palettes, you see palettes, you see artists drawing on canvas and so on, or painting on canvas and so on. And then attached to that, you see things like one artist who calls himself the artistic photographer, or one photographer who calls himself the artistic photographer, the next one calls himself the popular photographer, the next one calls himself the national historical photographer, the next one calls himself the practical photographer, and so on and so forth. They're trying to distinguish themselves, but never quite seriously. I think there's a tongue-in-cheek to all of this, and if there's an entertainment to all of this. Yeah, and they'd had, I mean, I guess it's also worth noting that it's not like in the 1880s or 1890s, these guys, because they seem to all be guys, suddenly started thinking about the space on the back of a piece of cardboard they'd all, or many of them, had had the opportunity to think of this space in the context of stereographs. Because on the back of stereographs, going back to the late, mid to late 1860s, there were, you know, nothing as ornate as, as you include here, but, you know, steps toward. I think so. You had that blank space on the backs of stereo cards, but you also had on stereos a pretty serious description of what you were seeing on the front of the cards, save for that group of cards where there was a whole tradition of narrative jokes where you had three or four or five cards that told a little joke. And on the backs of those, you might continue that kind of narrative. But on the, generally on the backs of the stereos, those statements were pretty serious descriptions about what you were seeing on the front, elaborations of what you're seeing on the front. Here, it's straight out advertising. We are taping before the show opens, as, as we usually do. One of the things I noticed in the book is that as we go through front to back, the poses and backgrounds and invented narratives that are within the rectangle become more and more extravagant. And, and really, by the end of the book, more and more kind of funny and 
and and knowingly played up. I'm assuming that's intentional. As, 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 as I, is it that as people, as, as going to a, photogra- a photography studio became a more common experience that people played with it more, if you will? No, I think if you look at the dates of images at all different parts of the book, you'll find a lot of overlap. I think it's a function of the way the book is organized and the show is organized the same way in that the book opens really describing what cabinet cards are, the thesis that they help people get used to presenting themselves to the camera, and the general importance of Cerrone as a broad influence to the notion of informality in front of the camera. And then it steps back and says, well... How did all of this work? And the second section of the book deals with the trade where Britt Salveson has wrote a, written a great essay about what photographers, all the tools that photographers used to coax people into the studio again and again. And their challenges. Photography was a very low profit trade. And yet, with the help of the cabinet cards, you get photographers in small towns, keeping a business going for decades at a time. And what were the tools that they did it? They did it through overlays. They did it through advertising on the backs. They did it through very elaborate backgrounds and backdrops and things like that. And then the book and the show said, well, let's flip the discussion and say, how did families or the people who were getting their portraits made think of the cards? And one way they did was in terms of family albums. There are actually, I found very few instances where you see a person every year for a wide range of years. But in books, in the book plate 31 through 33, you see a young girl uh, named Carolyn Hughes Hannum get her photograph, get her portrait made, every year from her age nine, 1889, to age 14. And you see her age and you see her change. What's happening here, what's that signaling, is that next section of the book and the show, where families would get every stage of life, from the newborn all the way through death, photographed. And they're thinking of photographing sort of all of the sort of major events of life, getting married, getting a job, uh, having family reunions, and so on and so forth. And we tend to think of these kinds of albums as 20th century phenomena. But cabinet cards really started people along that track. And then the last section breaks that a little freer to drive home the point of informality and humor and say, while we think of photography as pretty serious in the 19th century, a serious form of connecting image making to art and to documenting the world, there's a whole undercurrent of people who accept the sort of falsity of photography and play with it and accept the ubiquity of photography and play with it and share it amongst their friends. And that's where the last section really culminates what started with Cerrone, with his actors re-performing their characters in front of the camera. The last section also includes a number of pictures of 
Now, that could be described as kind of subversive, sometimes playfully, as with a, a, a Nelson, an F.J. Nelson studio picture from Anoka, Minnesota, of, uh, of a child bread baker. <laughs> or more pointedly subversive, as in pictures of same-sex couples. Yes, which are not unusual. You see them with more regularity than one might expect in the, in the 19th century. The other kinds of images that, that the last section includes are a range of images where you see the same person two or three times. And that's significant because when cabinet cards were introduced, that was around the time that a Boston photographer named William Mumler was being taken to court for his spirit photographs. His photographs of sitters with these sort of ghostly images of ancestors or relatives behind them. And by just a few decades later, people are playing with that notion of photographic truth by doing things like in an unknown photographer's presentation of three men, two playing chess and the third one watching, but they're all the same person. Or a salesman selling shoes to himself or a man coming in from a snowstorm and finding himself sitting in front of the fire. And so that notion of photographic truth has really sort of fallen by the wayside as something that's not really pertinent to these kinds of thinking, this kind of thinking about our way of interacting with photography. There were a number of times as I read through the book that I found myself thinking of Mia Feynman's great 2012, I think, Faking It exhibition at the Metropolitan. Yeah, it's just a totally great book. And it was just, I mean, I found myself as I read the book for, for your show, just kind of quite often laughing out loud, such as a picture of a man wielding a meat cleaver, threatening to... <laughs> threatening his friend and then having his friend threaten him back with a... With a hacksaw. <laughs> <laughs> It's, that one reminds me of my brothers and my fights growing up. <laughs> yeah, well, there are, there are a whole lot of fighting pictures in the book, too. A whole lot of staged fist fighting and other fighting pictures. And, yeah, I just kept thinking of, of Mia Feynman's very, very great show and book and how much um, I look forward to, to fl flipping through it again. I, I think if people don't come, out, come away from the book or the show laughing... I will have failed. <laughs> yeah, no, there's a lot of humor here. And, and in fact, I want to close by asking about two particular kinds of pictures, which seem to be intentionally funny, not, not just on the part of the studios, but on the, on the part of the people who commissioned the pictures. And so my question for both is going to be, what do we know about how and why pictures as, such as these got made? And one group of those pictures is baby pictures. There's, for example, a great picture from the Julius Caesar Strauss studio in St. Louis of a father and uh, maybe a year-old baby who look astonishingly alike. <laughs> and there are pet photographs. The, the, the wild one to me is somebody thought it was a great idea to have their cat photographed with their violin. <laughs> yes, indeed. I think if you're making a photograph of just your pet and you're not in that photograph, it speaks to how much you value the pet, but also how casually you take to the notion of photographing your life. And, and this is 
a point where the middle class, I mean, these are mostly white fitters. This is a middle class phenomenon. If you were more wealthy, you'd get larger portraits of yourself and your family made. You don't see many photographs of minorities. But this was a time where if you think of the huge changes going on in history during this time and all of the panics and all of the strikes and all of the turmoil that occurs, that's the other thing that I think of it when I look at these images is, is that this is rather bucolic life that emphasizes that sort of rustic, rural dream. And I might suggest that it's a reaction to what's going on. Maybe it's staving off some of the more abusive changes that are occurring financially and socially, but it's very much of a world to itself. The painted backdrops, it seems to me, reinforce that idea. They do indeed. And we're lucky with the show. I hope you can see the show because we have a full-size period backdrop. Yeah, and it's huge. How big is it? Tell people how big it is. (laughs) And that's nine foot square. So it's huge. And the interesting thing, if you look at the illustration of it in the book, the plate in the book, or the frontest page in the book, right at the open the cover in that first page, if you look carefully, you can see it's really two different scenes in one. That right in the middle, it's gotten quite a bit darker. And it will be more apparent within when you come and see the image. But it allows you as a customer either to stand out at the porch to look off over your grand estate or stay within your parlor to look through the window outside. And so in that case, it's in a very efficient use of that space. It's plate 94. Wild. I'm kind of amazed that survived. Yeah, I've been looking for one for some time, and that one just showed up, rolled up in somebody's house. And you can see from the date, it's just past the heyday of the cabinet card. But it's really the sort of tail end, and it's very typical of the kinds of quickly painted scenes that show up in the backs of many of these cards. Well, John Rohrbach, thanks so much. Thank you, Tyler. It's a pleasure to speak with you. And please encourage your listeners to come see the show. Exploring the trajectory of abstract art made during the 20th century, Small Abstractions at Sheldon Museum of Art highlights a great strength of the museum's holdings and explores moments when color, line, geometry, and gesture, not figural form, serve as the subject of painting. Often associated with large canvases and dynamic brushwork, abstract art in America, as seen in this installation, took on many forms, including instances where artists chose deliberately to work on a smaller scale. The exhibition includes work by synchronists Stanton McDonald Wright and Morgan Russell, members of the American abstract artists such as Burgoyne Diller, Alice Trumbull Mason, Ad Reinhardt, and Joseph Albers, as well as Pearl Fine and Nicholas Carone, known for their participation in abstract expressionism's The Club. Small Abstractions highlights the rhythms and geometries that this group of artists employed to formulate their own interpretation of non-figural or abstract art. For more information on Small Abstractions, visit sheldonartmuseum.org. This fall, Hammer Museum in Los Angeles presents Made in L.A. 2020, a version, in partnership with the Huntington Library, Art Museum, and Botanical Gardens. The fifth edition of the biennial, which highlights artists working throughout greater Los Angeles, 
features new installations, videos, films, sculptures, performances, and paintings, many commissioned specifically for Made in L.A. The exhibition will show the 30 artists at both institutions, two versions that make up the whole. Made in L.A. 2020, a version, on view this fall at the Hammer and the Huntington. Find details and sign up for updates at hammer.ucla.edu and at huntington.org. Welcome back. Next up, my conversation with Mary Morton about true-to-nature open-air painting in Europe, 1780-1870. It's on view at the National Gallery of Art in Washington through November 29th. Morton co-curated it with Gerald Luyten and Jane Monroe. The exhibition examines how painting and plein air was a core practice for European artists in the late 18th and 19th centuries, and how they traveled to sites as diverse as the Roman Campania, the Swiss Alps, the Baltic Coast, and the streets of Paris to paint outdoors. The show features over 100 oil sketches made by artists such as Corot, Constable, Denis, and more. The exhibition catalog, which was published by Paul Holberton, is an absolute joy and delight. It's available from Amazon and through IndieBound for about 45 bucks. Mary Morton, welcome to the Modern Art Notes podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. I think that, especially in audio, the place to start here is with the scale of the works under examination and on view. And while the title of the exhibition gives some of this away, of course, what does that size have to do with how we think that these paintings were made? Yes, so these pictures are, for the most part, oil sketches done outdoors. And this is uh, very much a, a practice that European artists are committed to in a kind of codified way by, I would say, 1800, starting, really, finishing their education in Rome, but part of that Roman education involved fanning out into the Campania, into the countryside around Rome, with portable painting kits and a couple of sheets of sturdy paper or some board, cardboard, over the course of a morning or an afternoon, spending an hour or two per sheet, according what they were seeing, quickly. And this, you know, practice of producing views and taking your, your art supplies outdoors, of course, has been, had been going on for centuries. But the, the practice of taking oil paints outdoors was thought, I think, to be somewhat impractical. Uh, it's sticky and, you know, I think it'll, get all, it'll catch insects and specks of dirt and, you know, all your work will stick together when you bring it back home. But they came up with sort of techniques for making this happen. And, of course, it was felt that there are certain things that you can record outdoors that you can only do with, with oil paint, which is to say atmospheric effects, color, and light. I mean, there's only so much you can do with graphite on paper or even charcoal. I mean, you've got you've to have oil paint. And so this became a burgeoning practice. In the last decades of the 18th century and the first half of the 19th century, every artist that went to finish their education in Rome did this. And yeah, going out in in teams, mostly guys, almost all guys, going out in sometimes international teams because Rome was very much a, you know, a sort of melting pot of young, ambitious artists from Copenhagen and Berlin and the UK and of course Paris, coming down and and you know figuring out how to how to how to paint light and nature. So why was it important for painters really across the continent to? be out in nature that way? Why was it important to their practice to be outside the studio and out onto the terra firma? 
Well, they're, they're, these are academic painters. Of course, they're all being trained in academies in all of those European capitals. And what I like to think about, and I think it is basically true, is that they tend to be young when they come down to Italy. And it's extremely competitive to become a successful professional artist. And, you know, the, again, they've all been trained by professors back in the, the écoles of their native cities. And now's the time to, you know, go out and light is very complicated and just practice recording natural effects of light on the landscape. And most of them probably treated it, treated it as a kind of practice of collecting field notes, like a natural scientist might do. Go out and paint a tree in a, in a realistic way. You're going to bring that sheet back, and you'll probably, if it was well done, take it home with you and use it a decade later, five years later, 25 years later, to inform a more respectable, exhibitable painting. And so, you know, if you are a professional landscape painter, you're not creating these wonderful, lively little impressionist records of what you see, you're creating very carefully composed figure. Uh, it'll involve figures, uh, very carefully sort of arranged compositions on a large scale. You're creating a surface in which brushstroke is invisible. You're creating something that is an illusion of uh, three-dimensional space. You're creating a sort of neoclassical historical landscape that is is worthy of public attention, and so you know part of it is is taking notes outdoors of you know what the sky looks like, uh, what real clouds actually look like to inform later compositions, what rock face you know how do you paint rock or caves or a waterfall like if you want to have a waterfall in one of your compositions back home, you'll go out and you'll you'll record you know what one actually looks like. But I think, you know, what really energizes the, the sheets that we have chosen, and we chose from hundreds of these things in the collection here at the gallery, at the Fondacion Custodia, at the Fitzwilliam Museum, and then from the collection of a, of a private collector. What I think really is thrilling about this selection is that I think these guys are also turning on in an almost sort of pantheistic way in nature. And then think again, they're learning this practice in Italy, in southern Italy, and it's warm, the air is dry, they're generally coming from northern European climes. And I have this sort of fantasy about them just sort of opening up in the, in the sunshine and relaxing and really enjoying nature. Because these paintings, these little sketches are so fresh and almost euphoric. I mean, I think they're like nature poems. These guys are feeling things as they're intently, intimately looking at these various natural motifs. And I liken it to, I'm from Southern California, and I've heard many artists coming from the Northeast to Los Angeles, where I grew up. I've heard so many artists talk about what it's like as an artist to you know, come, come into the special conditions of California light and the topography. But mostly it's the light, and it's the same light that you get in Italy because it's dry, it's clear, it's sunny for the most part. Sunsets and sunrises are magic. You mentioned the relationship between artists going into the field in these years and, and science, natural science, specimen gathering and such. The years of this show, 1780 to 1870, you know, really perfectly overlap with the development of professional science, both in, in Europe and the United States. And of course, in the United States at the same time, artists are also going out into the field and making oil sketches. 
So before we get to specific parts of the show and some specific paintings, you note in the catalog that painters didn't intend these works for sale or for exhibition. They were a kind of bravura note-taking. So how did they use them? Were they trying out painterly ideas or compositions or viewpoints, building a notebook from which things could be migrated into studio pictures or something else entirely? So one of the great protagonists of this exhibition is this guy, Valenciennes, who really codifies the practice of outdoor painting in a treatise that he publishes in 1800 that is carried around by all artists throughout the century, actually. Camille Pizarro is still reading Valenciennes' treatise. It's over 600 pages. A lot of it is about perspective. But the last part is about landscape painting. And he's very specific about saying you have to go out and paint, you know, pebbles and you have to paint skies. And this is how you compose a sketch and spend no more than two hours. And if it's a sunrise or a sunset, only spend 30 minutes because the light's going to change, you know, beyond what, what you're able to, to record. But Valenciennes himself was actually, he had an incredible natural history collection. He was constantly gathering specimens of rocks and crystals and little bits from nature. So I think there there absolutely is a kind of empirical, you know, positivist, scientific ethos to the practice, you know, that they're discovering things. And then, of course, natural scientists are also sketching and drawing and recording what they're seeing visually. So there's this really beautiful crossover, which I think, you know, in a sense is coming out of, you know, enlightenment philosophy and just, you know, this thrill of, you know, how do we how do we know the world? The best way to know it is to to go out and experience it sensorially, to use your own senses to investigate what the world consists of, particularly the natural world. You know, touch it, see it, record it, investigate it visually, you know, own it. So I, th- I, th- I absolutely think that's part of the impetus of this whole thing. And then we were talking about, you know, how they used these little pictures. And it's, you know, it's interesting. We were having some conversations about provenance because, of course, it's a huge issue. Whenever you do an exhibition, you kind of have to prove, you have to provide an alibi, an airtight alibi for everything that you're showing. And that's very difficult with this material, as I was explaining to our lawyers the other day, because, yeah, these were not valued, really. These little sketches would live their whole lives in the artist's studio. They wouldn't go out into exhibition. They wouldn't go out into the market. And so when these artists died, you know, they would mostly get destroyed, these sketches. Some of them would get sold at an estate sale. There are a couple of instances, for instance, with Granet from X, who gave all of his all of the contents of his studio to the, the Musée Granet in the south of France in X. And so we've got this whole cache of oil sketches by this guy, and we know that they're by him because of this donation. But most of them, it's a, you know, for, in terms of attribution, it's a real guessing game because so many artists are, are, are participating in this practice, you know, who, who made what, and it's really fun. We've spent a lot of time lining up, you know, for instance, four granes that are known, and then maybe this fifth sketch is also by him. How does he compose the view, but more intimately, more specifically, how did, how did he construct this image quickly? And each of these artists is coming up with their own strategies, shortcuts, really, on how to, how to pull off capturing this image in less than two hours. And so they're using their fingers. They're using their brushes in really interesting and innovative ways. They're using solvents to you know, thin paint in certain areas to allow the luminosity of the paper to do some of the work. 
instead of like adding white to, to their pigment, they'll just remove some of the paint from an area that they've already filled in. I mean, there's just these wonderful creative sort of, well, shortcuts really to clamp down on, on the image that's in front of them. So, you know, I think the, the, the two main purposes of these pieces for these artists is, again, field notes, using taking notes that you're going to bring back with you and use uh, later on in objects that will be worthy for public delectation. But the other thing, which I think is also very interesting, is just practice. If you're going to be able to convey natural light in a convincing way, you know, back in Berlin when you're creating a, a commissioned landscape painting, you know, you're going to have to practice doing it. And so they're practicing capturing effects of light. They're practicing painting water in motion. They're practicing, you know, distant views and, you know, craggy rocks in the foreground, relationships, spatial relationships. It's really sort of, you know, it's a practice. Well, let's talk about some specific pictures. I want to start with one that's in the book, but that is not in Washington, because I think it illustrates some of the things you were you were just talking about. It's a picture of Corot at his easel, painted by Eugène Decan. Decan? My French is always bad. And it kind of hovers between being a view of an artist working in nature, but also an art historical reference to that artist's work, and then has all of this handsy, fingery, playful brushiness that you were you were just discussing. Is that mixture of things in these sketches typical, unusual? Are you talking about mixture of effects? And the reference is not just to effects, but but you know addressing a specific art history and these little sketches. I mean, I th- the best example are, are two sketches by a guy named Andre Giroux that belong to our gallery. And I've spent quite a bit of time, we all did, all of the curators that worked on this show, with a conservator, paintings conservator named Anne Herningswald, who has spent, I think, more time than any other conservator that I, I can possibly know, you know, really studying these sketches. She spent a lot of time with the Thaw bequest up at the Morgan Library. She spent a lot of time on our pictures, and then she spent a lot of time with the Fondation Custodia sketches, taking them out of their frames, studying them with loops and flashlights, and really trying to figure out how they put these things together. And she thinks that these two images by Giroux of a forest interior are probably from the same sheet of paper. One, one of them, I think, is for, Forest Interior with a Waterfall from 1825-30, and the other one is Forest Interior with a Painter from about the same years. Yeah, and the, the, it's, they're just they're great to have together. We have them hanging right next to each other here, and they actually were bought, well, they were acquired at the same time. And it's interesting because these on these sheets of paper, the three of the edges are deckled, and one edge is cut with a knife. And that's the same with the the second sheet. And so, you know, probably he's out and he just divides this piece of paper into two. And the waterfall is the image that he's after. And it's actually incredibly beautiful and fresh. In this instance, the piece of paper has never been, well, the piece of paper has never been reattached to a a canvas or a board, which often happens with these little sketches. It's just a piece of paper floating. And the edges have pinpoints in them from where they were tacked to the board that he took outside. And he captures in that waterfall picture this beautiful evocation of literally what's sitting in front of him, which are boulders, water rushing, and then these marvelous graphic branches that come across the composition. And probably took, you know, less than an hour to put together. And then in the second sketch, 
he basically shows somebody doing what he's just done, which is a painter. He's got the a little portable easel balanced on his knees, and super charmingly, his dog is with him. And just like dogs do, he's sitting with his back to his master and just making sure that you know there's nothing dangerous out there. And he's totally intent on, on what he's doing, but he's immersed, this painter, in nature. He's actually quite small in the composition. So, you know, I don't, I don't think there was a whole lot of, to answer your question about the Koro, art historical awareness of what they were doing. I think they just, they were, they, everybody was doing it. It's, it's part of what you did. It was part of this very professional mode of picture making. And then the introductory essay where I wrote most of it, it's really about the art historical rediscovery of this material, which I think is fascinating. And I use Philip Conisby, who was the curator here until 2008 when he passed away. It's a small group of people that are rediscovering this material. And he's kind of at the center of it from the get-go because he does his dissertation on Claude-Joseph Vernet, who was the most important landscape painter in France in the late 18th century. And Philip, doing his dissertation on that guy, really gets deep into the contemporary discourse of landscape painting. But he also very importantly discovers that Vernet was, of course, a teacher and told artists to go out into nature with oil paints and record nature in, in, in sketches, in quick sketches. So there's documentary evidence of this practice in place already pedagogically. Uh, in the late 18th century. Sadly, we don't seem to have any oil sketches by Vernet himself, and maybe that is because they've been lost. But then Philip does an exhibition on Vernet, and then he falls in with this group of English guys centered around a guy named John Gere, who was a curator, a keeper, at the British Museum. And Gere is an expert in Italian drawings, and part of their game, of course, is a game of, of attribution and part of the pleasure of Italian drawings, of Renaissance Italian drawings, is freshness of capture, you know, these figural sketches done quickly. So he kind of, I think, has a, a aesthetic predisposition to fall in love with these sketches, these nature sketches. And he discovers in, I think it's 56, 1956, this little piece of paper made by a guy named Thomas Jones, who in Gears' estimation was kind of a boring Welsh landscape painter. But the sketch is so fresh and compositionally advanced and alive that he's like, wow, you know, this is extraordinary. And he buys it. He manages to get one for the British Museum. And then he starts discovering more of them. And nobody knows who uh, who's making these things, but he's finding them on the market and buying them for a couple of hundred pounds here and there. And he and his wife start to create a kind of collection, a study collection of over 80 at the end of these little sketches and hanging them in their house. And then people are coming over. And Philip was one of these people that um, it was called a kind of laboratory to, you know, just engage with these. And Philip is just, you know, discovering that this practice is much broader than he had thought it was. So in 1980, they, they all do an exhibition together at the Fitzwilliam, which is one of our partners for this show, on this oil sketch tradition. And there's just this kind of energy of discovery of, you know, mostly just really interesting work by artists that kind of were known, but whose careers were sort of boring. So, you know, they're down there in Italy, they're doing these amazing things, they go home, and I just envision them sort of going back into the tunnel of academic practice, which could be could be rather deadening. And they make things that art historians don't really pay attention to anymore. But these sketches are incredible. So people like Valenciennes, who not that many people were paying too much attention to, Thomas Jones, Michelon, Bertin, 
Raymond Caro is an interesting character because he is, you know, deep into this tradition in the 1820s when he goes to Italy. And he continues to paint landscapes when he gets home to France. And he creates out of the genre of landscape, you know, a, a very important genre, you know, the art history of, of, of 19th century French painting. And he basically takes the genre right up to the feet of the Impressionists who make out of landscape painting, you know, the site of the most advanced painting genre-wise in modernism, basically. And so Corot is like the, the, the great bridge character. There's a whole section of the show on sketches of water, which is fascinating for lots of reasons. Most of the sketches in the show predate by several decades. For example, John Ruskin's fixation on water and how for Ruskin no one could paint it, and it was in, in some ways the true test of a painter. Is there a particular painting or two here of of uh, rushing, falling, churling water that is a great example of how artists were trying to figure out how to represent it? Yeah. Well, I think t my two favorites are probably the Morgenstern, this waterfall of the River Traun, and I don't know if you have them there, and then, of course, The Great Wave by Baron Girard. Those two are just knockouts. There's the Bido, which is a little bit different because he, he just can't work quickly. You know, he's going he's gonna to start and then he's going to go back at the same time the next day and he's going to keep going for a week. He just couldn't walk away from the meticulous rendering. But the Morgenstern is spectacular. Yeah, and it's a, it's a really different representation of water than the Girard. Yes, it is. Yeah. So Morgenstern, German, and he had to kind of hike up to this place. I've kind of looked into this place. It's this 40-foot waterfall of a tributary of the, of the Danube called the Traun. And it was, a, it was a picturesque site. I found representations of it in, in lithographs for sort of voyage uh, albums. But I just am so impressed by him, you know, the degree to which he pulls in close to this river fall, waterfall. And it's, it's clearly done very quickly, and you know that in part because there's this thing that starts to happen where artists, in a way, almost showing off. Once they're done with their sketch, they turn the brush around and inscribe the location and the date. So again, real note-taking, and they in inscribe that into paint that's still wet. So you know that that sheet was done, you know, wet into wet in one sitting. And so down at the lower left, you see it says Trown Fall, and it's got, I think it's August 1826. So done very quickly and in a very lively fracture, but so carefully composed. And I find this in most of the sketches because, again, these guys are academically trained. So there's a kind of repoussoir, a sort of framing element at the left, that sort of rock face jutting out. And then the chute of water comes, you know, sort of propels out of that rock face. I love the, the color, that first sort of area of color that you get of a kind of gray-green, which is the color of the underside of a waterfall, you know, and he's paying attention to that. And then he has to come up with a lot of um, notational strokes, sort of mark-making, to convey the illusion of all of this water, you know, falling down, little dashes and squiggles and scumbles. So you come in at the left, and then you sort of get caught up in this chute, and then you, as your eye moves across the sheet, to the right, you recognize that there's a distance, a distant palisade with some pine trees on top that he has, again, with for the trunks, he's just scraped the paint away to make the lines of their trunks as opposed to carefully delineating with the other end of the brush. And there's sort of some mist and then patch of sky. 
And so from left to right, it's just super coherent as a composition, but it feels like a snapshot. You know, it feels, in, it has the freshness of something that was, you know, captured informally and quickly. Mary, is it desirable for a painter, at least once in his life, to witness the eruption of a volcano? Yes. So, you know, we refer throughout the catalog and in the exhibition, we have several quotations by this guy, Valenciennes, who's really the theorist of this practice. And he very specifically says, you know, yes, young men, you know, go out, see if you can see a volcano erupting or in a a moment of activity. And happily, in the late 18th and early 19th century, Vesuvius in particular was very active. There were several eruptions in the late 18th century, and I think six or seven or eight in the early 19th century. So it was possible to actually witness an eruption, and several of these artists living in Rome, or everybody always ventured down to Naples in the Bay of Naples, were able to, to see it. And so we have a few sheets of you know, records note-taking of some of these guys as Vesuvius and um, Mount Etna and, and you know, Stromboli are bloating. I mean, I actually really love the distant views of the less active volcano from afar, Vesuvius from afar by Dahl and Giroux. They're so beautiful because, of course, when a volcano, a volcanic form is has this beautiful symmetry to it, this conical shape that I think is really compelling for artists because it's only witnessed from afar. You know, you're looking across the Bay of Naples and there's this beautiful geometric form. And it was just, it was compelling. It also locates the sketch. I think my favorite of all of these is, again, our guy Giroux of Pompeii. And you have Vesuvius, there's just a little plume of smoke coming from the conical opening of Vesuvius in the far distance, conveyed in this beautiful sort of purple, green, gray haze. And then there's Pompeii, which is, has this kind of eerie emptiness. Human order in the foreground, wild nature in the, in the, in the foreground. Yeah, and there's a lot of that. And again, what you just said was sort of poetic. It's a poetic counterpoint, point-counterpoint. And I think there's a lot of poetry in these. There's a lot of sort of contrasts and just moments in nature that they find to be aesthetically pleasing. And they try and convey that in their sketch. So we do throw the, the genre of haiku around because these are like painterly haikus. They're done simply and quickly, but with great skill and with great education behind them. But they are they should act quickly. They should be read in three lines. You mentioned Rome and the Roman Campagna earlier. Why were paintings of and around Rome so important or fen- fundamental to this corner of painting tradition? Artists, I mean, you could not be a respected professional artist really in Europe without spending a little bit of time in Rome. I mean, it was really the center for um, art studies, certainly, and you just had to go and steep in ancient Greek and Roman sculpture and architecture and Baroque sculpture and painting and Renaissance. I mean, that was just de rigueur for, actually, for all educated Europeans, but particularly for artists. And there was a way in which, you know, I think these guys felt that just picturing Rome, just painting a view of Rome was an act of kind of grounding you know, of uh, art historical grounding, the resonance, the ancient resonance, you know, of, of Rome as the seat of all civilization, I think is, is, is all over these, these sketches that actually picture parts of Rome. And then certainly in the, in the Campania, I mean, it's interesting because you find almost a, a, tr- a particular route that all of these artists seem to have taken and particular views that they all seem to have portrayed. 
And so, yeah, there's a kind of like a course that they do. And in particular, I mean, Tivoli, you know, every single one of those guys went to Tivoli and painted the waterfalls at Tivoli with the little temple of, of Sybil, you know, at the top. It's like the same thing over and over again. So it's just it's just part of the part of the deal. And again, they're not so much tourist souvenirs, although I think some of these guys did start by, let's say, the 20s, 30s, 40s in the 19th century. I think they did start to make these that they you know they could sell them as little mementos of people's trips. But I think more than that, it's just this landscape and this city are felt to be ideal in a in a humanist way. And so to to paint the Sabine Hills and the valley leading up to it in the Campagna was to paint kind of a kind of natural ideal. Um, and this dates back to to Pusa and Claude. This is a 17th century idea, and these guys are all I think falling in, into that line. You know, and then just it's just extraordinarily picturesque. You've got I can't I can't emphasize enough the effect of of the light, this beautiful Italian light. It just blew them away, and what it does with your sense of space and 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 the geology of that region, this volcanic region, and these sharp mountains and these you know deep valleys and the vegetation, these beautiful greens and the myriad of greens that you could find, you know, in the spring, summer, and fall. And so you're looking out at a, at, a, at a gorgeous landscape and there, you know, in the middle ground is, is a ruin. And that's just, you know, and it's got these sort of kind of a cube look to it. I mean, one of, one of the great stars of the show is the, the painting by Coro of the island of San Bartolomeo, where, you know, he's sitting in a boat downstream, probably anchored, and he's looking at this view, but he makes of it such a satisfying composition, almost in the classical way, where you've got, you know, a kind of cubist series of planes at the center on the island, and then these beautiful arc bridges reaching left and right, and they in turn are reflected, those those uh, round shapes are reflected in the surface of the river as it's flowing, and you get sky, and you get water, and it's just, there's so much there to hold on to, but done on a piece of paper, and definitely done quickly and therefore you know still maintaining a level of freshness and Corot I mean he just and people have been obsessed with his Italian landscapes he was in Rome in 1826 and 27 and he stays in Italy for another year and he produces these miracles and so the great art historical gift of the 1996 exhibition that Philip did with Sarah Fonce and Jeremy Strick in the light of Italy, was to discover more of these beautiful Corot Italian sketches, but also the fact that there was a context and that others were also making little miracles. And they were by people that you'd never heard of. Yeah, that, that Corot is, is terrific. We will have it like, I think, almost all of the other paintings we've discussed on, on manpodcast.com. Mary Morton, thanks so much. Sure. Such a pleasure. That's all for this week's show. The Modern Art Notes podcast is edited by Wilson Butterworth. Special thanks to Steve Roden, who created the sound for the program. The Modern Art Notes podcast is released under a Creative Commons license. Please visit Modern Art Notes for more information. Thanks for listening.